0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and in this podcast I'll cover the role of psychoanalysis in manufacturing and identity in Japan. It is a semi-continuation of what I've been doing with Orientalism, but I wanted to be specific and talk about the Oriental development. Uh, or the development of Orientalism in psychoanalysis. And it was very clear that it played a role. And in doing this again, I'm not simply focusing on Japan, but what we need to recognize is that Japan is a kind of experiment in, in that we can view it, that is, that it's relatively recent in history, that there is this development from a people who were mainly identified by a clan and local religion, and then there there is a shift then to a national identity. There is actually a engineering then of people's interior life uh, is the point here. That I think that there really is a manufacturing of consent. And that in tracing this, I'm not saying this is peculiar to Japan, but I'm saying that psychoanalysis in Japan is a case in point of the way in which cultural elites, in which the situation of culture, then, can bring about, through a discourse, the strength of a discourse, can literally manufacture an internal consent, not just an outward bodily consent, that people's understanding, their self-understanding, their identity, and that's what's taking place here, very much so, that uh, psychoanalysis was used in the Japanese context. And I don't mean in, in this to say that, oh, the Japanese do this, and Uh, they're deceived. No, I I would just claim that this is always what is happening, that the way in which we would do identity, our most intimate identity, I presume that uh, the situation is such that we could always trace the discourse. Now, Japan is interesting because the relative recent period in which it entered into modernity, that we can go back And it's such a stark contrast, and there is the concerted effort in the Meiji period to take people who were previously just physically disciplined by the culture, that there was the long isolation in the Tokugawa period, but that was no longer possible uh, with the entry of the Western powers of Admiral Perry coming into Tokyo. And so a series of things occur. One of the texts that's put out in the pre-war period is the Kokutai no Hongi, which is just filled with, in addition to religion and other things, it's also filled with a, a lot of psychoanalytic understanding, a lot of discussion of the idea that we need to clear up individualistic and abstract ideas. We need to get rid of an individual ego, which has been imported. And, of course, the very notion that these things need to be cleared up indicates that we're not talking about some ancient origin to this identity, which is exactly what the Kokutai no Hongi will project, is that this sort of unity between the emperor and the people is an age-old kind of identity, and we're just rediscovering this, or we're putting it into place. The fact that you have to put it into place, that you have to write a book about it, that you have to enforce it literally through evangelists being sent out by the central government to create a state religion and a state identity, indicates that this entry of individualism was a kind of threat to the idea of a unified nation-state. And so the idea is put forth that one's true identity is, you know, in our country it says Sovereign and subjects have from of old been spoken of as being one. So again, the typical thing that you project a kind of history here in mental health, then to be a true Japanese meant harmony with the national entity. And outside of these constraints, the individual is not considered completely human. Now, what you get in some of the literary texts of the time is a a suggestion that, in fact, just the opposite is the case. That is, that Japanese, you know, this is Dasai, talks about that the self is no longer human. But anyway, the Kokutai no Hongi is an example trying to ward off this notion of the infiltration of the ego or individualism. It reflects an earlier political and legal reality, uh, which... By force, then kept this out. Maybe it becomes, you know, with the return of Kiyoyasu Marui and Hisaku Kosawa in the 1930s, they went and met Sigmund Freud in Vienna. And I'll talk a little bit about this meeting in which Kosawa proposes an alternative to the Oedipus complex, to Freud, and Freud agrees, but they return, and Kosawa, of course, is going to become the teacher of Takeo Doi, and Doi is the premier in the pop literature in Nihon ron He is uh, highly influential. As so the Japanese Psychoanalytic Society was formed, there was chapters in both Tokyo and Osaka, and even the royal family, Prince Tomohide Iwakura was part of the, the society, and would play a key role, in fact, in uh, the development of national thought through psychoanalysis. He could have says himself that his prime concern was to show how emperor and subject are literally one in the Japanese psyche, and this corporate identity is over and against individualism. To find oneself in this is to be complete and have true mental health. One of the things that, you know, Freud's emphasis on narcissism, And the Oedipus Complex, in the Oedipus Complex, the child wants to kill his father, marry his mother, was, of course, literally ruled unthinkable in the Japanese context, in which the primal father would be the emperor. And so you could not go around even speaking publicly of this. And so in the Japanese interpretation of narcissism, Iwakuda says it's subject to a more basic process of socialization. He says that through association, we are engineered into a complicated progression, which is more supreme than is narcissism. There occurs a transformation of self-love to love of others, and this self-love includes the love of the emperor. That is, this is just part of our being, that we are in fact, they will talk about the emperor as the superego and the individual subjects as the ego, and together then the Japanese people and the emperor constitute a single person. And so only the person who is able to dissolve his ego boundaries and submit himself completely to the superego achieves mental balance and this Kenji Otsuki one of the early psychoanalysts explains the moral man is man who is obedient to the superego and therefore by also obedient to the demands of a true love of self If you know anything about psychoanalysis this is of course already turning freud on his head that in a freudian understanding of the superego is in some way to be diminished and the ego is to be strengthened In a Japanese psychoanalytic context, the opposite is happening. In Otsuki's term, true self-love, to love the emperor, the love of whom two things grow together. The self-love is the love of the emperor. Self-love binds the individual to the constraints of the family, the nation, the emperor. And so where Western psychoanalysis sought to free the individual, free him from the superego primarily, Japanese psychoanalysis aimed at binding him more securely to the psychosocial constraints. The healthy individual was one firmly grounded on the concept of being part of the emperor, coevality of emperor, nation, and self. The way I'm stating it, and of course the way it's pictured here, is a bit extreme, but understand this will give rise to an understanding, especially through Doy, in a mind, other concepts that, though they might not be stated in this way in regard to the emperor, nonetheless, these concepts remain. This dependence and this interdependence and this groupism, it is an element that's present, but it's also been an element that has been enforced. And even, I think, in modern Japan, and Japan's rapidly changing, and so it's hard to to make blanket statements, but there is this this literature is still being published and read and consumed, and so very similar ideas are going to flow out of this period. So though it is extreme in its description of the emperor, I I believe that it has a continuing impact. James Maloney, who was a psychoanalyst who went over in the immediate post-war period, says, In this version, the emperor becomes inseparable from the superego. By exploiting coevality, they explain the timelessness of the unconscious and account for the existence of the id. To the Japanese, each individual ego becomes a part of the whole. Each individual ego is a mosaic that fills into the general scheme established for the Japanese way of nationalistic life. Where in Freudian psychology the conflict is primarily between the ego and id, this was resolved in a Western system through an active role of ego. But in a Japanese psychoanalysis, the ego must continually give way to the id, and the id then, you know, in Freud he'll describe this as a kind of rooted in nature, and of course Japanese will privilege this rootedness in nature. He'll describe it as immature, And they all in some way privilege that and say, yes, that this early stage in which one is closer to nature is the better stage. So again, Orientalism is very much at work in this discussion. And as Freud has taken up, his denigration in many instances, and I'll, I'll come to his just open denigration of Japan and the emperor system, he uses precisely that in Totem and Taboo. Nonetheless, Japanese will take up what Freud is doing and they'll just reverse it as has happened in throughout Oriental studies. In Freud, he thought that in its blind drive to satisfy its instincts, the id would destroy itself, that the death drive, especially in later Freud, would take over. Japanese then will, in some way, a, a picture the death drive as fused with the pleasure principle With Eros, Freud calls it the Nirvana Principle, and I say, yes, there it is, the Nirvana Principle. And so, Japanese psychoanalysis will put a positive emphasis on following instinctive desires, the instinctive desires of the id. And so, basic instinct, natural desire, nature herself, are going to have opposite values in the two systems. And so, for Japanese, the natural is the pure, and it is the positive, and one is to pursue this. So, in a Freudian understanding, to be unchanging, instinctive, he'll even use the language that Japanese are, or the system is infantile, and they'll say that's right. But it is also to ground the self in a reality that surpasses the fluctuating conditions, and the uh, quoting here, of the conscious mind. It is here that one contacts eternity to be idic, to follow one's basic instincts and desires, to be close to nature. Oh, it may be infantile, but isn't that a good thing? And so our imperial throne is coeval with heaven and earth means indeed that the past and the future are united in one in the now, that our nation possesses everlasting life and that it flourishes endlessly. By tapping into this idic instinct then you're tapping into eternality this is Freud's picture he he will come to see the death drive as precisely playing the role of a grab for eternity through a kind of death which uh, of course lines up with the biblical understanding this is the overlap that to imagine that you can establish your own eternality in a national identity That just seems to be the human enterprise. There is always this pursuit of, as they're saying, the eternal now, this timeless now. Of course, in Freud he's going to connect it to the unconscious mind, but in in his understanding, the unconscious is the place from which the death drive arises, but in a Japanese understanding, there'll be a privileging of the death drive. where Freud says the nucleus of the unconscious consists of instinctual representatives which seek to discharge their cathexis, that is, to It consists of wishful impulses. There is in this system no negation, no doubt, no degrees of certainty. There is no mortality in the unconscious. In fact, there is no progression. There is no time. There is only eternality. And so Japanese psychoanalysts are very literally picking up on this and saying that we need to tap into this unconscious, timeless now that this is the place in which we are, in fact, not ordered temporally, and that's good, that we are not altered by the passage of time, because that's the the character of us Japanese people. And so this unconscious realm constituted an ultimate reality for Japanese. It is the truth. Freud, of course, the unconscious, it's a little bit ambiguous as to where truth lies in Freud. He will talk about the death instinct and Eros' as two cosmic principles. But ultimately, he pictures the death instinct and the unconscious as something that one needs to take control of. And so the unconscious was subject to the pleasure principle. There is a reality principle in Freud. Freud saw conflict between the pleasure principle and the ability to postpone it by means of this reality principle. Japanese psychoanalysis will just get rid of the reality principle, or they'll conflate it with the pleasure principle. This is what Freud calls the nirvana principle. There's the fusion of the instincts into a singular drive in which pleasure is found in the death drive, literally thinking here of dissolving the ego, of returning, in Doi's phrase, to Mother Earth, as in nirvana, is the final goal of every human being, to serve Mother or to become one with nature herself. And so the goal of analysis becomes one, In literally this will be practiced then in, in Japanese psychoanalysis, that people going into analysis that what a cure will amount to will be just the opposite in the analytic situation in in Japan. It's not one of freeing the ego from the suffering placed upon it by the id and the superego, but in fact a weakening. And of course, this is masochism in Freud's picture, a masochistic weakening of the ego. As Freud describes it, and as Japanese analysts would concur, masochism arises from the unmet demands of the superego, and their answer is meet the demands, and so the demand is to be punished by the father. It produces the desire to be subjugated to suffer, and suffering and death offer satisfaction and, of course, ultimate resolution in death to the conflict between the id and the superego, the, the basic conflict arising from the id. The task of psychoanalysis, according to Freud, is to strengthen the ego, to make it more independent of the superego, to widen its vision and extend its field of organization so that it can take over portions of the id. And so Freud says, where the id is, there shall be the ego be. That's the goal in psychoanalysis. In Japanese terms, where the id is, there shall the superego be. I mean, one of the clear places of the difference between Freud and what Freud is describing, Freud described himself as the Darwin of the mind, and he founded psychoanalytic theory on the evolutionary principles that incorporated the idea of progress. In this notion, the psyche was extracting itself from man's inward struggle and the, from a primitive past. And... He felt an equivalence could be drawn between primitive man and early stages of psychic development in each individual. Already you notice here that, of course, again, Freud's estimate, this is the typical Orientalist perspective, that as you go east, you encounter primitive man, you encounter one's own past. And so Freud is picturing Japanese in particular as the most primitive and perhaps link then to the idic understanding most clearly. Japanese psychoanalysts will say, yes, that's right, that we are then back. What, but our past then is the, the true past. In other words, that is that we are as we're close to nature and nature is itself the truth. And as we are absorbed in and, and controlled even by nature, that's not a bad thing. Freud says we can judge this the so called savage and semi savage races and their psychic life assumes a peculiar interest for us for we can recognize in their psychic life a well preserved early stage of our own development and in a Japanese understanding of course development from to throw off their Uh, you know, they're picturing a a period in which the emperors descended from the sun goddess and that their truth is found in their past and that the past eternality always resides in their idic cells. The goal is not to depart from that, but to be absorbed completely. Freud says, delving into the primitive mind provided a correspondence to psychic development. He'll do the same thing, you know, with infancy and with neurosis. It's a means of throwing new light on the id, he says, that precedes the full-grown, civilized personality. And so his point about neurosis is that neurosis is just an early stage, then, in human development, and it's a kind of way of looking into the past of that development. And Freud divided, then, the evolution of man's psyche into three stages. There's the animistic stage, which, of course, is Japan. It is an animistic religion. There is animistic, the religious and the scientific. Animistic man in the most primitive stage ascribes omnipotence to himself. And Japanese psychoanalysts will say that's correct, but the self here then is an omnipotence that we share corporately. Religious man seeds this power to God or the gods And scientific man gives up the notion entirely and resigns himself to death in living within scientific reality. And so Japanese are going to read Freud, and this is all very highly insulting, one would think, if you didn't reverse it. And so the description not only implicitly but explicitly mentions the Japanese emperor system and Japanese psychic development as the most primitive stage of human development. In the chapter Animism, Magic, and the Omnipotence of Thoughts, he describes the most primitive and immature of minds in detail that will reference the Japanese worldview. Primitives are those who imagine the world is populated with innumerable spiritual beings, 8,000 gods, according to some Japanese, both malevolent And malignant. And these spirits and demons they regard as the causes of natural phenomena, and they believe that not only animals and plants, but all the inanimate objects in the world are animated by them. Primitive peoples, he says, believe that human individuals are inhabited by similar spirits. And, of course, in Japanese, there is the word ki for spirit. That same spirit that resides in the world resides in the essence of Japanese personhood. These souls which live in human beings can leave their inhabitants and migrate into other human beings. They are the vehicle of mental activities and are to a certain extent independent of their bodies. The aim of religion becomes one of primarily dealing with the spirits, and this is again true in the Japanese Shintoism, it's really true in, in Buddhism also, of appeasing them, making amends to them, propitiating them, intimidating them, or robbing them of their power, but the idea is to subdue them, to manipulate them to one's will. As so Freud did, you know, he is throughout referencing either explicitly or implicitly Japanese religion. It is the entry into the primitive mind. And he says this, he is thinking of Japanese primitives. He describes it, it that in the animistic stage, humans assign omnipotent powers to their own thoughts and deeds. And these then are projected onto a chosen individual, And at this point, he cites the Japanese emperor system in what he thinks is the best example of this primitive stage. Now, remember that Kosawa and Hiwakuta, they're going to introduce Freud then in a period in which the emperor is, uh, in the 1930s, is being, you know, raised to ever new heights of centrality, and so a lot of this is going to have to be reversed, left behind, or in some way edited out. One of the most glaring examples, Freud says, of thus fettering and paralyzing a holy ruler through taboo ceremonial means to have been reached in the life routine of the Mikado of Japan. And then he quotes at length a description of the emperor's daily activities, his duties, which he thought personified early emotional development and the omnipotence attributed to the father in the imagination of the son. And so the controlled life of the king or emperor was necessary to see that his omnipotence, you know, he was omnipotent, but that omnipotence had to be used in the right way. This is a quote from Freud, he thinks that it would be very prejudicial to his dignity and holiness to touch the ground with his feet. For this reason, when he intends to go anywhere, he must be carried hither on men's shoulders. Much less will they suffer that he should expose his sacred person to the open air, and the sun is not thought worthy to shine on his head. He was obliged to sit on the throne for some hours every morning with the imperial crown on his head, but to sit all together like a statue, without stirring either hands or feet, head or eyes, nor indeed any part of the body, because by this means it was thought he could preserve peace and tranquility in the empire. For if unfortunately he turned himself on one side or the other, looked a good while towards any part of his dominion, It was apprehended that war, famine, fire, or some other great misfortune was near at hand to desolate the country. And so these taboos were placed on the emperor. They didn't have affection for him, but he says there exists a contrary but unconscious stream of hostility. This ambivalent, you know, this is the old idea of the attitudes toward the father, this ambivalent feeling tenderness mixed with hostility, reveals that their veneration, their very deification, is opposed in the unconscious by an intense, hostile tendency. And so clearly it would have been impossible for Freud's Japanese disciples to miss the degraded position Japanese society and the Japanese emperor system fell into in Freudian hierarchy. And so what Freud uh, imagined was happening in the deification of man was some kind of murder, a payment for the murder of the true father of the original clan. This, is, interestingly, coincides with the later development of the thought of René Girard. So the elevation of the father who had been murdered into a god from whom the clan claimed descent was a far more serious attempt at atonement than had been the ancient covenant. With the totem. So the deified emperor was then a symbol of the murdered father from whom the clan claimed descent. And this totemism, it fails to satisfy guilt and the creation of a god emperor is a renewal of effort to, in some way, atone for the sin of having killed him and a reflection then of the murder that must have taken place. It would have been life threatening for Freud's followers to repeat in a Japanese context Freud's conclusions on the hidden meaning of the emperor, and it would have been, of course, self-defeating socially and personally to let Freud's values stand. As I'll demonstrate in my next talk, there is an alignment of Freud, there's a flipping of the Freudian sensibilities in Japanese thought. We'll stop there and take up then with the development of psychoanalysis analysis in the work of Takeo. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, Or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.